0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co host Eric Raskin
0: am Kieran Mulvaney.
1: And Eric, this week saw a very significant anniversary, as it was on January 19th, 2008, that Roy Jones Jr. beat Felix Trinidad at Madison Square Garden. What was significant about that, you ask? I have a feeling you already know the answer. (laughs) It was most notable boxing world. For the fact that that was the day Eric Raskin and Kira Mulvaney, first met. Indeed. Happy anniversary to us.
0: (laughs) Yes, happy anniversary to you, to me, to us. This is truly a special occasion 13 years ago, so that means uh, our friendship now gets to celebrate its bar mitzvah. (laughs) Uh, Jones-Trinidad, not a terrible fight by any means, but... Not too memorable yeah. either. Uh, so so us meeting is undoubtedly the biggest thing to come out of that evening at the Garden. It's the thing I remember most about the evening. Yeah. I don't remember very much about the fight at all. I, yeah, I don't remember much about the fight. I think maybe Galata was in the co-feature, but I'd have to look that up to be sure. Um, but uh, yeah, us meeting was, was big, and, and it set the stage for many years to come particularly when we went to hbo fights of you getting preferential seating Uh, so you know sometimes i was a couple of rows back sometimes i was up in the auxiliary sometimes like with mayweather pacquiao you were ringside and i was watching on a tv in the press room so this this set the table for that you nice and cozy inside the ringside press corral me having to bribe madison square garden security (laughs) guards to let me get close enough to have a conversation
1: yeah, that, that's oddly the thing that I remember most about the conversation was that there was, I love the fact that human beings will obey the simplest of barriers, right? Even the capital rioters at first are walking through the velvet <laughs> ropes. right? And there was this, you know, whatever it is, foot tall, two feet tall, this little, you know, barrier thing. But we were dutifully standing on our respective sides of it.
0: Well, there that's beings, because there was a six and a half foot tall, 300 something pound <laughs> gentleman <laughs> keeping an eye on me as a, if, if I inch too close.
1: Uh Okay. There you go. Good point. Yes all right uh this week on the podcast we will make it three straight weeks of welcoming to the show a hall of famer the one and only steve smoger joins us to talk about the craft of refereeing and gives his take on various fights and fighters uh also eric will reveal his list of the top five vaunted prospects who turned out to be busts and we have a fair amount of news to cover this week uh including the announcement of a fight for canelo alvarez and uh showtime's february boxing cards uh but let's start with showtime's January boxing cards, and in the main event of a triple header on Saturday night from the Fight Sphere at Mohegan Sun, Stephen Fulton and Angelo Leo gave us really what has to be the first fight of the year candidate of 2021. Look, it won't hold up as the fight of the year at the end of 12 months, but right now it's the leader. It was 12 rounds of non-stop super bantamweight action, most of it at very close range, and pretty much all of it was very high quality. Yeah. Um, and it was Philadelphia's Fulton who prevailed, pulling away. Over the second half of the fight, to win what was ultimately a lopsided decision by scores of 118-110 and what I thought was a slightly unfair 119-109 twice. Um, both 26-year-olds entered the fight unbeaten. Uh, Fulton uh, remains so and is now 19-0 with eight KOs, while AO falls to 20-1 with nine KOs. Uh, Eric, you and I were both quite torn before the fight about who to pick, although we did both correctly land on Fulton. But it looked like a 50-50-ish fight coming in, especially with Leo coming off that tremendous performance against Tremaine Williams last time out and Fulton coming off uh, a COVID layoff. But in the end, it was highly competitive and hard fought, but wasn't actually all that close. So, so how did Fulton separate himself here? And how impressed were you? You know, not just by the fact that he
0: won, but the fact that he won while seemingly fighting Leo's fight. Yeah, that's the key, the way he chose to fight. Uh, Al Bernstein got mildly blasphemous in round five by making a Corrales-Castillo comp, Um, (laughs) but but I got what he was saying. This nose-to-nose warfare, it was not what made strategic sense going in for Fulton, and it was leading to tremendous action. And also, at the time Al said that, Leo had just had his best moment of yeah. the fight, hurting Fulton with an overhand right late in the fourth, and the fight was roughly even, and it felt like, wow, we might be one third of the way through an all time classic. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, I didn't give Leo another round after that, and neither did any of the judges, so it became far too one sided to go down as a classic. But like Diego Corrales, Fulton could have fought at long range and instead chose to stand right in the trenches and It was masterful how he pulled it off. Uh, He occasionally fought at long range and used the jab. He mostly came right inside and stood forehead to forehead. What he didn't do was let the fight take place at mid-range, where Leo might have been able to outfight him. But I thought Fulton was fantastic. I, I knew he was good. This was a little beyond what I knew he was capable of. Great speed, great ring IQ, unbelievable conditioning. I mean, he threw 1,183 punches and looked as fresh in rounds 11 and 12 as he did in round one. He's not a huge power puncher. That's about the only knock I have on him right now. Otherwise, it seems there's nothing he can't do. No punch he can't work into the arsenal. He went to the body. He proved he could take a decent punch. By the end, he was just picking apart a very good fighter with his speed and sharpness. So, just a tremendous performance. Uh, and, and one last bit of praise uh, for someone else. Let's give a, a huge shout out to referee David Fields, who stood back and let these guys fight on the inside. A lot of referees would have mucked this up, not understanding that you know just because you're leaning up against each other, that doesn't mean you're in a clinch. Uh, this was an outstanding fight in part because Fields allowed it to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what what's your assessment, Kieran? Was this result all about fulton exceeding our expectations or were you disappointed in leo at all and where do each of these young 122 pounders go from here
1: well look i'm right with you i think this is all about cool boy steph um, and, and what he did it sort of goes back a little bit to you know a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the odds um, and the fact that, you know, despite everything, despite Leo's win over Williams, you know, despite Fulton's layoff, Fulton was still the favorite. I and mean, we were having a conversation about why we thought that was. And and one of the things that we talked about was that it was almost certainly a perception that, you know, Fulton had the sort of more varied skill set that Leo, in a sense, it, it, it sounds like an incredibly unfair phrase for, for what he is, but, you know, a bit of a one-trick pony. It's just that that mm. pony is happened to be a snarling Mustang, <laughs> but the sense being that you knew what you would get from Leo. And if you could neutralize that, um, then you, then you stood a chance. The the question was, how do you neutralize it? And and it just so happened that, you know, Fulton, has that skill set and went in with that plan to neutralize it. You know, when we were doing our predictions last week, I did say, Oh, I thought there'd be a a part of the fight where they'd have to go toe to toe and Fulton would have to dig deep. I didn't think it would be 12 (laughs) rounds. Right. uh, And that he'd absolutely choose to do it. I thought it was going to be because Leo was going to force them to do it. Um, I, I, I don't really have anything negative to say about Angelo Leo. Um and, and what he, I think he did what what he does, or at least he tried to. He tried yeah. to put pressure on Fulton. He tried to dig in. He tried to work his body. Um the, the difference was that, that Fulton was ready for him and just happened to be better at it. Um, you know, did Leo throw quite as many punches as we've seen him throw? No, but but that was on Fulton. You know, he would take you know you talked about how sometimes he would fight a little bit at distance and you know he he just changed that up constantly he would he would take a little half step back when he wanted to to separate himself and force leo to reset and then just as leo was getting ready to reset then he sort of you'd pop him from the outside and then he'd step in and make sure that he was the first to step in and not leo and and he did a very good job i thought of deflecting a a lot of punches on his shoulders and his arms as well um you know there were times he'd come right into the pocket and come forward and there were times where he'd punch and swivel there was there were a couple of lovely sequences Uh, I, i think that fifth round that you talked about was where he really took it over wasn't it and and you, there was just a lovely sequence there where you just punch, swivel, punch, swivel, punch, swivel, <laughs> yeah. all while staying really in close. It was absolutely beautiful. Um you know, I I think if you are a guy like Leo, a a come forward body punching inside fighter, you're going to be a nightmare for almost every opponent. But if you come up against someone who's perhaps not only a better boxer from the inside, but has the speed and skill and strength to beat you on the inside, there's just not that much ultimately you're going to be able to do. And that was what he was faced with in the end. Um, look, you, people in the future might look at the score and think, oh, 119-109, twice 118-110, that was an easy fight for Thornton. But there are one eighteen, one ten 110 fights and there are one eighteen, one ten 110 fights, right? right? This was a fight in which, yes – Stephen Fulton won nine or 10 of those rounds, but boy, he had to be on the top of his game and had to work really, really hard for every moment of, of every minute of all those rounds. Um, I don't think Leo stock should fall at all. Uh, I think he remains a viable contender. Yeah. What I think the, the issue here is that Fulton's stock, which was already high should, should be elevated. Um, I, off the top of my head, he's at worst. Now, I think the number two guy in the division, um, and look, here's the funny thing. Obviously, he didn't want to catch COVID. But had he done this to Leo last year when we when he was scheduled to, we would have been impressed, of course. But the fact that he did this to Leo after what Leo did to Williams because Fulton had to step out makes it all the more impressive. Yeah. Um, as for what's next to him, look, I've been a booster for some time, of course, of Murad Akhmedaliev. But I think he has a hard time with the Fulton we saw on Saturday night. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see that fight happen. Um I think Fulton annihilates Brandon Figueroa right now. Yeah. Um, I think he might do much the same to Luis Neri that he did to Leo. Um, Fulton's in a very strong position, uh, and he can take on pretty much whoever he wants. I think right now, um, you know, I, I I think he really has elevated his stock. He he's there now. He's not a contender anymore. He's he's one of the guys at the very very top of that division. Yeah. Um, Maybe a good fight for him. He didn't seem very excited by the idea when Brian Custer suggested it to him, um, saying that he he wants to unify, he wants to fight Mark Medalliev or a Figueroa or a Neri. But maybe a fight that I think would be intriguing, and it's certainly very easy to make, I would have thought, is Ray Salim. Uh, he scored a dominating win himself in the co-main on Saturday. Um, his fight against Vic Pesillas, like the main event, was one in which we both struggled to pick a winner, but also, like the main event, proved to be one that was ultimately not all that close, um, although this was much more one-sided in the end than than the main event. Um, Aleem, uh, fighting on Showtime for the third time in 11 months, stayed undefeated. He's now 18-0 with 12 KOs. He dropped Pesillas four times, a uh, fourth time convincing the referee to wave it off without a count around 11. Pesillas suffers his first loss, drops to 16-1. and Aleem, it has to be said, this is one of those fights where afterwards I felt a bit of an idiot for having any doubts at all, because it was just such an impressive performance by Aleem. And he just seems like he keeps raising the bar every time he's out on Showtime. What stood out to you in this one? And
0: if he were to fight Stephen Thornton, is he ready for him? Hmm. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll get to the Stephen Fulton question in a, in, in a minute. First, in terms of what stood out, I, I think what stood out most to me here was the use of angles. Um, you know, the, the hand speed between these two fighters was comparable. Uh, they both have, to to use a Max Kellermanism; those fast twitchies. But uh, <laughs> Aleem kept coming at Paseas from different angles, and that's what kept getting Paseas knocked down. All these punches he didn't see coming and couldn't react to quickly enough. He wasn't getting badly hurt. He was getting caught a little off balance or or on the temple and going down. And it was because of Aleem's awkwardness and use of angles. By the fourth round, Paseas looked mentally defeated to me. Yeah. Um, but then in round eight, he found something. Uh, he, yes. he he started landing the straight southpaw left hand to the chin. And I think he was hurting Aleem a little. He was building some momentum. A come from behind knockout actually seemed fathomable. And then Aleem caught him with a hook to the temple yep. in round nine and his knee touchdown. And it was all Aleem from there. Aleem is for real. Um, is he ready for Fulton? He might be, uh, you know, I'd make Fulton a favorite there, but yeah. it's not a blowout. Um, but I think if I'm Aleem's people or Fulton's people or Steven Espinoza, I want to build to this a little bit. Yeah. I wouldn't do it next. I'd put them on the same card again in the spring Maybe get them in the ring, jawing at each other afterward if they both win, and you can have a really big showdown in the fall, headlining what will then feel like a a really major Showtime championship boxing card, or even sometime in 2022. Uh, Aleem is 30, so he's not exactly young, but I think this one can simmer a little bit. These are both tremendous talents their name value hasn't caught up to their yep. talent yet, especially in the case of Aleem. I, I think he needs to be built up a little more as the threat to this young rising star in Cool Boy Steph.
1: Yeah. They're both good talkers too, so they can build it up if you give them enough time and space
0: to, yep. to do it as well, right? So Yeah, yeah. sure. All right. Uh, the opening bout on this card was not the one we previewed last week. Uh, Raleigh Romero's scheduled opponent, Justin Paldo, missed the lightweight limit by nearly a full weight class uh the doctors ultimately then didn't clear him to fight so avery sparrow who was on standby stepped in and proved no match for romero raleigh dropped him with a left hook in round one sparrow seemed to suffer a minor knee injury in round six he also lost two points that round for a low blow And early in the seventh, his corner waved it off with Romero having built a nine-point lead on all cards. So Romero goes to 13-0 with 11 KOs while sparrow has his wings clipped
1: he's now
0: 10 and 3 uh kieran how did romero look to you compared to his controversial win over jackson marines in august is he back to deserving to be thought of as a top prospect or was the quality of the late sub not high enough to prove anything to you
1: well yeah i mean we can't ignore that that latter point hey i mean sparrow just wasn't very good at all in there was he um but all that said he's not a scrub right he's He's fought against some decent, if not exceptional, opposition. I mean, he dropped and beat Hank Lundy, who's a pretty decent, if, you know, past his prime contender. Right. He's just not, just wasn't on the level of Romero. Um, what I did like about the Romero performance was that and the guys talked about this on the broadcast, he was much, much more disciplined um, than we've seen him. I mean, even prior to the Marina's fight, when we were previewing that, one of the things that we highlighted, and I think one of the reasons why he picked Marina's in that fight was that Romero had a tendency to be a little right hand happy, um, to be a bit sloppy with his offense. Um, And he was clearly making a conscious, determined effort to dial that back. Uh, And that's going to be important for him, I think to do and to stick with if, you know, he's going to continue advancing. You know, on the one hand, right, Sparrow, I was thinking to myself, Sparrow was the perfect kind of opponent for him to do that because he didn't, he was very clear early on that he wasn't going to provide any danger. And so, you know, Romero could focus on his own game. But on the other hand, he was also exactly the kind of opponent where if he was going to get sloppy again... It was going to be this guy because he obviously had the beating of him, and he didn't need to to maintain that discipline. So, I think the fact that he did he, that he did fight a, a more contained fight was was the most encouraging thing. Uh, well, where is he after this? Uh, he's still a prospect more than a contender, yeah. I think. Yeah. I was looking at the rankings, and I was trying to think like who would be a good step up for him, and I almost thought about somebody like Isaac Cruz, but I, he's not ready for that. Um, yeah. Uh, not least because even when he was, he still, and I think Raul talked about this, he still has that chin a wee bit high and that left hand a wee bit low. eh? Um, He's going to have to work on that. Uh, I thought about maybe as a step up, somebody like a Jason Sosa, who's going to be there for him to hit uh, and isn't fast, but has got those veteran moves uh, in that he's going to be a pressure fighter. He's going to make him work a little bit. You know, it's that kind of a level of fighter Maybe a couple of fights down the road would be good for him, but but for now he is still a prospect. He, he's 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 got a good ceiling. Um, maybe even after another fight or so, somebody like a Yuriorkis Gamboa, who you know is not what he used to be, but even that I still think is a bit dangerous for him at the moment. Um, I'd want him to have another fight or two before that. I I think it's a good idea to dial him back a little bit, focus on making him that bit more disciplined. Uh, rounding out his game and and then seeing you know maybe where we're at like by the end of the year what kind of a step up he's ready to take i think
0: yeah out of those names you mentioned i, I kind of agree with you that jason sosa sounds like about the level you might be willing to step up to right now i would stay the hell away from isaac cruz uh, for the yeah. for the moment <laughs> that could be trouble um, earlier in the week, uh, Showtime had planned to broadcast another triple header on Showbox on Wednesday night. Unfortunately, Pedro Marquez was unable to participate in his scheduled eight round show opener against Martino Jules due to illness. Uh, he got sick the morning of the fight, so it was called off, leaving us with a two fight card instead of a triple header. We had a pair of competitive, entertaining clashes of Orthodox fighters versus Southpaws, and in the main event, the right-handed fighter prevailed. That was 22-year-old Mike Juan Williams of East Hartford, Connecticut, who advanced to 16-0-1 with seven KOs, with a 10-round unanimous decision win over 28-year-old Colombian Southpaw Yeis Solano, who suffered his first loss and fell to 15-1 with 10 KOs. If you'd scored the fight based on how their faces looked at pretty much any stage of the fight, Solano would have been the winner. But it was Williams winning the majority of the rounds, scoring a key knockdown in round eight with a punch to the shoulder, apparently taking advantage of Solano's glass shoulder uh, and getting through a weird 10th round that we can discuss separately. The judges were all on the same page, pretty much. Two scores of 96-93, one 92 card, all for Williams. Kieran, we said beforehand that Solano was a quality step up for Williams. And if Williams won, it meant he was at least somewhat legit. So, is he? H- how do you grade Williams's performance and potential in the 140-pound division? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
2: Go to your happy place For a happy price Go to your happy price price Priceline
0: CBS Wednesday We have so many cool, diverse people From different backgrounds, different beliefs Different upbringings And it just keeps growing
1: I'm a citizen of the United States
2: I'm a hustler
0: I'm
1: a big Taylor Swift fan
2: I'm the queen of the tribe
1: I am playing whatever
0: role I gotta play
3: I'm gonna play this game four speed. I ain't going down like no
1: punk.
0: (laughs) A New Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus.
1: Well, he performed better than I expected, Um, uh, not least because I I, I predicted (laughs) him to not win. Um, (laughs) But, but, I mean, the thing that I I specifically focused on in the preview was that I wasn't sure that he didn't strike me from what I'd seen of him as a guy who had a lot of gears to go up through. But I felt like he put that criticism, if not to bed, then I think he certainly addressed it with the way he performed. Um, I, I thought the strength of his performance was that he showed a number of different looks. He worked well outside and on the inside. You know, he did a, he, after a strong start, it looked as if maybe he was starting to fade a little bit and Solano was catching up to him, but then he did find that extra gear uh, and sort of took it up another level there. Uh, I, I think in the sixth or so that he he really sort of forced, started to really force the action um, and, and sort of pulled away. Um, he was more active and aggressive than I'd expected from the start. It, it, I, it made me wonder a little bit, you know, after looking at, you know, some of his earlier footage, uh, maybe he's the kind of guy who's just does better against better opposition um i also wondered if it looked a little bit like this was a kid who knew that you only get to make one first impression Mm. and he was determined to come out he knew what he was up against and he was determined to come out and you know lay it all on the line in his show showtime debut It wasn't a hugely memorable performance. It wasn't a very pretty fight. Williams, I'd be hard-pressed. If somebody said to me, well, what kind of a fighter is Williams? I'd be hard-pressed to answer that. Um, I'm not sure that there's anything that leaps out uh, about what he does. But he does a lot of things well. um, And that's okay. He's very much a prospect rather than a contender, again. um, That 140-pound division, like the 122-pound division, woof, it's... It's it's very strong at the top and it's not too shabby just a level or two below that. But yeah, that's okay. He's 22. He's got time. He seems like it's a conscientious young man. He, he's clearly listens to his trainer a lot. They've got a good relationship. Um, you know, he goes out and he executes his game plan each round that the trainer asks him to do. So much better than I thought. Plenty of time yet to see just what he's got. I uh, want to see him on showbox. He's definitely a showbox fighter for a couple more fights. I think. Agreed. Yeah. Um. But here's one of the things with showbox one of the things of course is that it's very good at testing young prospects and seeing what they've got one of the other things is that of late it seems that the first show of the year always has something weird happen um a couple of years ago there was that long delay when the ropes just gave way right um and then there was this 10th round um i've not quite i don't think i've seen a sequence of events quite like it uh So early in that round, Solano lost a point for a low blow that wasn't actually a low blow. Then there was what looked like a double knockdown, except it was actually a double slip. There was a a punch, sort of cuffing punch behind the head, a head clash and tangled legs. The referee Danny Schiavone ruled that Williams was knocked down but didn't rule that Solana was knocked down. It all seemed a bit odd. It was very confusing. I was, I was sitting there with furrowed brow trying to figure out what the <laughs> hell was happening. Um, and then when also I was, I basically almost threw away my scorecard at that point. Cause I figured there was no way I could do the math. Um, but, When the round ended, uh, you could hear someone from the commission saying, hold the cards uh, as they went to replay. And then they correctly determined that, in fact, there was no low blow and there was, in fact, no official knockdown. So Williams would have won that fight either way at that point. But any thoughts on this use of replay by the Connecticut officials?
0: Yeah, I think it's worth commenting on, largely in contrast to what happened in Nevada in November with Andrew Maloney in his rematch with Joshua Franco, where the replay review took forever. It added like 20 or 25 minutes of dead air to the broadcast, and then they made the wrong call after all that. Uh, What happened after the 10th round of William Solano— that was a glimpse into what replay can be, how it can be a positive instrument if implemented correctly. Granted, they were fortunate this was the final round, so they weren't trying to get something done in a one-minute break between rounds. They could take their time a bit. Still, they were quick, efficient. They saw the replays. It clearly wasn't a low blow. It clearly wasn't a knockdown. They made the right calls, and, and it didn't really seem to delay anything. So... You know, worth uh, worth us taking a minute or two here to, to commend the commission. You know what? When, when the judging in Connecticut has sucked, as it has frequently yeah. uh, late, of late, we've called it out. So let, let's commend them when they get something note perfect, as they did here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think the swiftness really was was the point there yeah. as well. They, they they were right on that, so that was good. Um, in the and I was able to retrieve my scorecard from the trash. Because <laughs> um, in the opening bout, uh, any tiny change uh, to the officiating would have changed the outcome. As Aram Avagian and Jose Nunez fought to an eight-round majority draw. And they're a super featherweight the contest. One judge had the Panamanian Southpaw Nunez winning 77-75. The other two scored it 76-76. So the 22-year-old Nunez's record now stands at 11-0-2, while the 30-year-old Avagian exits his second showbox appearance with a record of 10-0-2. I scored it 77-75 also. Um, you know... I, it, it's it's close i mean there were some close rounds in there i mean i thought you know i thought that nunez clearly won that eighth round and so i had a bit of a hard time seeing how you could have a vagian up through seven but at the same time there were some close rounds and when you're only doing an eight round bout it just doesn't take very much uh to to really sort of shift the the overall scoring i I can't complain i don't feel
0: like either man was really harshly treated uh what did you think about the the draw and and is there any interest in a rematch uh, so I had the same score as you, of course, uh, 77-75 for Nunez, but absolutely no issue whatsoever with the draw. Uh, I think Avagian winning would have been a slight reach, yeah. but 76-76 yeah. isn't really a reach at all to me. Uh, and I'd absolutely be on board for a rematch, preferably over 10 rounds. You know, bump yeah. it up from 8 to 10. Hopefully the extra two rounds help one fighter or the other separate himself. I will say, Avagian is 30 years old. He had an extensive amateur career. I think he is what he is. He he isn't yep. about to blossom into a championship caliber guy. His defense just isn't good enough, frankly. Uh, for all that amateur experience, he isn't as polished as you'd like, yep. and he's easy to hit. He basically has two modes, covering up, and he's just taking punches on the arms and elbows and not producing offense, or he lets the punches fly and leaves himself wide open. He's a fun fighter we've seen him twice now on showbox i've thoroughly enjoyed myself each time but if there's one of these fighters who might actually be going places i think it's nuñez not avagian yeah found his level was actually the note that i made mm. while while watching the fight uh, uh, which is fine you know right. the world the world needs good entertaining showbox fighters so indeed Yep. Um, before we wrap up our post fight conversation, uh, I'll note that we usually each pick a showbox star of the show, but there's not much point when there are only two fights <laughs> and only one of those fights has a winner. Obviously, Mike Williams was the star of this show. No need to debate. Uh, and we'll get back to picking a star of the show after the next showbox card. And now for the bad news for you, Kieran, it's time for our first picks competition score update of 2021. Uh, Romero Poldo picks are thrown out, uh, although right. I, di- I did say Romero KO7, but alas, it's, it's non-transferable. <laughs> no points scored there. Uh, I picked Aleem by decision. You took Paseas by decision. So that's one point for me. I took Fulton unanimous. You took Fulton split. So that's three for me, two for you. And I took Williams' split decision on Showbox. You went with Solano. So that's two more for me, zero for you. The score in the very early stages here is to 6-2 for the home team. Uh, So, Kieran, where am I relative to right where you want me?
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, okay. just It is funny. I made um, uh, like in my notes before the prediction, I had Fulton unanimous, and then I just made that game time call just as we were recording it. But there you go. And that's what a spontaneity will do for you. It's yes. totally overrated. Ignore, <laughs> ignore all your impulses, Karen. Oh, always, yes. always in boxing podcasting and indeed in life, which is <laughs> generally a very good piece of advice. <laughs> All right, let's turn to this week's guest. And what a guest he is! Uh, his refereeing career has taken in more than 1,000 fights, including 200 world title bouts. It's taken him to 36 countries and territories, at least 26 of the states in the United States, and most importantly, to Canastota, New York, where he is a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He's one of the most recognizable and popular officials in the sport. It is, of course, double S, Steve Smoger. Steve, it is an honor to have you on the Showtime Boxing Podcast.
3: Now, that is some introduction. (laughs) I've got to live up to it now. uh, (laughs) uh, It's really nice to get together, chat. And uh, I haven't seen Eric in years. I think our last time together was with NBC Sports. And, um, Fire away,
0: I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I was I was going to mention that that I, I had the pleasure of working with you, Steve, on several NBC boxing cards uh, about five years or so ago. I particularly remember fondly an afternoon uh, in Houston spent stuffing our faces with uh, with unhealthy food oh, together. Oh, <laughs> remember that? Oh <laughs> yeah. my
2: God! Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: and and you and you are now doing boxing broadcasting again as a, a ringside scorer and rules analyst for the Ring City USA cards. Uh, so, yeah. so two questions for you to yes. start um are you officially retired from refereeing these days and as far as broadcasting was that always a part of your career ambition or just something that that hit your radar in the last few years
3: uh when i made the hall of fame nbc contacted me and uh asked if i would be interested and i thought it was a a really a natural transition i felt very comfortable in doing it and um it was it was really nice to see the fight game in another perspective. As far as officially retired, veteran referees never what to say never retire; they just fade away. <laughs> uh, really, um, back in our my working days, I did a lot of work with Dean Chance. Mm. May he rest in peace. And Dean had a great run with the International Boxing Association. When he passed, I was able to work with his estate. And friends of mine have purchased the IBA. They're quite active in Europe. They're getting a little bit more work uh, in the United States. And the short answer is, I'll work with them now, not inside, but I've supervised many events for them. And, uh, I can also judge I'm licensed in Rhode Island and in New Hampshire. And if I get the call, I go just to stay relevant, just to see, just to really see people. I last worked with Jimmy Birchfield in, um, Rhode Island Mm -hmm. at the twin river casino. So I'm not officially retired, but, uh, The benefit, guys, of the Hall of Fame, the International Boxing Hall of Fame, is that you make the Hall of Fame. I was the 11th referee in the history of the sport. Uh, There's been no referee since my induction on 2015. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be a wave as they get closer to retirement age or uh, a little older than the norm. But the, the, the burden is everyone who preceded me except Stanley Christodulo in South Africa has immediately retired, which is uh, Mills Lane, Joe Cortez, Richard Steele. That was the most recent crop. So I was perceived to be retired, but um, I had some outstanding work. My last major world title was in 2017 in Santo Domingo, which was mm. a terrific fight. And now I pick up sporadic work, but I'll tell you guys, I'm very very happy to work with uh, uh, Eric. You'll you'll enjoy this. Mm. It's the same crew almost to a person uh, with Ring City. Right. David Gibson is the lead guy, mm-hmm. and all of his minions in putting <laughs> together the show. And uh, it's been really, really enjoyable. They asked me, they said, um, have you done any judging? And when I looked it up, I've judged 36 world titles. And by happenstance, for example, I'll be doing the feature in Moscow. And the undercard has Dmitry Bival in an additional title fight. So they have a WBA official, me, there. Why fly someone in? They did modify pay. And I'm there, no room, no flights, whatever. And they said, Steve, would you mind judging this fight? And uh, thank God I've been on the right side. So (laughs) I've been very, very lucky. I go to the uh, Stevie Weisfeld School of uh, Judging. <laughs>
2: That's uh, a good school. school. That's a very good school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: seriously, uh, I've attended a very sharp, and I've attended all of his seminars and several fights. Um, we recently roomed. We've done some work in Canada together for the Toronto Commission. So it's nice to stay active, but uh, let's see what 2021 brings.
1: While we've got you, obviously, we really want to uh, sort of get some insight from you on some of the the art of refereeing. And one question, you know, one topic that Eric and I have talked about a bit is that you notice a lot more now that when a fighter is knocked down, a referee won't just count. He'll ask him to do some stuff, feel like walk over here, come back to me, walk over there. Uh, you know, you obviously had a reputation for someone who would give a fighter every opportunity to prove that he could still go. And so I'm wondering what you feel about that, that development.
3: Well, that's, that's a safety precaution. They want to see that the cognitive ability of the fighter is still intact. And uh, I think it's excellent. I think it delays the, the action to a degree, Mm. but uh, in this safety first environment, they're able to assess I personally think it's an excellent assessment tool. I had an assessment tool that, uh, that I used, and then they took it away, was the, the standing eight. I could go in and assess and uh, make a determination. I enjoyed that because um, it gave me the ability to really see if the fighter could continue. And uh, as Kieran mentioned, I wanted the fighters to decide their fight i did everything in my power to allow the fight to continue to i hoped was a just end and uh, that served me well yeah, that really right. served me well uh guys it's like the beer commercial the key element and the art of refereeing is when to say when <laughs>
2: there you go <laughs> you don't want to be right. too early right
3: because in this day and age, the climb back is really, really, you know, it's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I would see that he'd given me or she gave me everything he or she had. And then I was blessed with a, I assume, a sixth sense. I knew when to go in. I was blessed, no fatality
2: mm-hmm.
3: and blessed no serious injury which can befall anybody yeah right don't get me wrong it's just I was the luck of the draw right you know, but that was it you say the art is judgment and movement and when to say when mm. when you start out you want to be noticed hey you know that's Steve Smoger in there coming up and this and that and Timmy Ryan and Gil Clancy acknowledge this young kid coming up. As you progress in the sport, you don't want to be noticed at all. Mm. Did you do that fight?
2: Just, right. You want to get in right. and
3: get out right. and wait for the phone to ring so Eric and I can go to where? Houston?
2: Right. Uh, I, think we work, I think we
3: work Montreal and uh, several <laughs> other venues, but that's it. As you progress, you just want to get in and get out and guys like you note who's doing the job and who isn't.
2: Mm, right. Yep.
3: Mm. And that that's basically it.
0: Right. Well said. Uh, well, one common observation about the current state of refereeing is that there doesn't seem to be much young blood. Uh, you look at Nevada and it's almost all the same referees as 20 years ago is that a problem in your view? And do you have any theories as to why there doesn't seem to be much of a pipeline of younger referees?
3: You know, being one of the, uh, of the veteran set, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you do have some young people coming up and you have some middle level guys in, uh, in, uh, the East, you've got Benji Estevez who does an outstanding job, stays in great shape. And, uh, He's he's got some miles left um, in in Texas. You've got John Shirley. You've got Mark Colloy that do outstanding jobs. Um, West Coast. Really, I would say uh, Jack Reese does mm. an outstanding job. And um, the young. So what's the youngster? Uh, the father and son.
0: Ka- Kai's junior
3: guys, junior it okay. does a nice job. Uh, there's guys in the pipeline in Chicago, you've got Celestino Ruiz coming up nice. You've got Johnny Callas in in Connecticut. And you got a few other guys. So the commissions become comfortable with us and it takes a while to break in.
2: Mm.
3: It really takes a while to break mm. in before yeah. they before they'll move you to uh some major work but i don't see it as a problem because they have enough refs now to cover all your major events in my mm. view
1: right mm. you, you mentioned earlier about how maybe when you're younger you you gonna get a little bit caught up in it and as you get older you you'd like to try to recede into the shadows a little bit more when refereeing and i'm wondering maybe that's the answer whether there's one bit of knowledge that Steve Smoger today could give to Steve Smoger in, say, 1980? Is there something that you wish you'd known starting out that you know now as a referee?
3: Um, I had the benefit of training. (laughs) I'm dating myself, but I had several (laughs) sessions in Philly with Zach Clayton. And Zach taught me rhythm. You've mm. got to be smooth in all of your moves. Then I trained with Frank and Vic Cappuccino at, the, at the, uh, the gym in Philly. But I would just say to me starting out, just what I indicated, judgment and movement. Mm. That's the key element. And you can't, you can't go in too quick. You've got to you've got to hold and observe. You've got to observe and then make your move. Do not panic, do not get crazy. The big excuse on me coming up with a lot of guys I worked with that really didn't make it was if you talk to them and you I learned early on referees do not like criticism. Mm. So even though they would ask my opinion, they really didn't want it. (laughs) They really didn't want it because I would say, I think you were a little early. What do you mean? Safety. I had to protect the fight. I said, okay. So I was very rare in giving advice because anything I said, they took offense to a person. There's never one. Well, I have to change it. Mark Colloy, John Shirley, when I recently did that broadcast uh, in the, where were we, The Alamo Dome, how did I, they come up to me on a break and they truly were interested in my opinion. And uh, the advice I would give is first of all, I may have been one of the newer breed because I went to the Larry Hazard School of Conditioning. Mm. I thought if a fighter can go 12, I've got to go 12. And I worked out incessantly. I still, it's in your brain. Mm. My walks have to be a minimum of 36 minutes. Mm. Why? 12 threes. I'm just conditioned. Mm. And back in the day, I trained, no matter where I was, if I'm doing a world title in Sofia, Bulgaria. I got out that morning. Nerves, whatever, that calmed me. So conditioning is what what I do tell them you can't get in trouble for citing conditioning. Hmm. But their particular moves, or if I said anything where I know they went early. When a fighter has enough energy to bitch. Oh, we're on.
0: (laughs) That's okay. We can use that. We can use that premium cable. Premium cable. We're fine. When they
3: have enough. (laughs) energy to say, well, you wait, then you stopped it too soon. Hmm. When I stopped it, they're in my arms. End right. of story. Right. Then I knew I did the right thing. Your biggest compliment is not the winner. The winner loves you. You're the greatest ref in the world. But on the way out of the arena, when the coach of the losing fighter, the trainer, you know, your Don Turners and your big names, Back in the day, said, thanks for giving my kid every chance. Then, mm. you know, then I know I did my job. Right. right. Then mm. I really knew I did my job.
0: Uh, as you are a, a broadcaster and thus a member of the boxing media these days, uh, you're required to have some opinions on the current fight game. I'm just curious, Steve, what's your number one fight you want to see made in 2021? The, the fight that you'll be most disappointed if it doesn't happen.
3: I'm starting to like a kid. Uh, I like his. I like everything about him. I met him in California, and uh, he showed up his last fight, got knocked on his buns, got up, stopped a very seasoned fighter with a body shot. <laughs> so I'd like to see uh, maybe Ryan and Gavante.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. You, know, no I'd like to see the, you know, I'd like to see
3: that. You know, I'd like to see that. There's a couple other. Th- The minute we go off, i will have 25. Uh, (laughs) But knowing the kid and seeing him do what he did, you know, I love the young guns. I love this Virgil Ortiz, Mm -hmm. 16 and I was 16 K. So I want to see him step up. I enjoy the youngsters of the game. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, I don't want to see Canelo and GGG. I had GGG in his heyday. It's not his heyday anymore. I had him in the garden with Gabe Rosado. What a Mm. fight. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I have been very, very blessed. Um, And I still stay in touch. I don't see them that often, but I see them at Hall of Fame. Miguel Cotto. Mm. I did three or four Miguels. We always, he's very quiet, but he acknowledges his referee. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Kelly Pavlik. We went on a run that was incredible. He had three stoppages and then he goes up against uh, Jermaine Taylor and came back from the depths, you know? So I really enjoyed my, my run. Uh, like I said, I still play around a little bit. I'll get a call to go to Rhode Island. I get a call to go to New Hampshire because the commissioners, Bobby Steven commissioner for 45 years, 45 years commissioner of New Hampshire, a couple of shows a year, but he remembers me because I was a baby when he was, (laughs) you know, so it's a wonderful, listen guys, it's a wonderful sport that we're in.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Pavlik Taylor, because when I think of Steve Smoger in the ring, that's the first fight that I think of. I'm curious, do you have a particular fight that you think of first when going through the mental Rolodex of of all the fights you officiated?
3: Well, that's the key. That that jump started with that was 07. Mm. And you really need all of a sudden I'm famous again. (laughs) And I that sets the stage for a tremendous run from 07 to 17, and you know, you're three judges. So you got three chances to get a job. There's one ref. And I stayed busy, Eric. I, I was lucky to stay busy. Um, another fight that I get a lot of, and I really just stayed out of the way and had to be on time was Jiroff Tony.
0: Mm. Oh, you know, yeah.
3: Tony came out of nowhere.
0: I, I forgot you did that fight. It's I, it, in my mind. I associate it more with Emmanuel Stewart yelling as the broadcaster, um, but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, right. that's a, that's a great one that you refereed.
3: Yeah, that was terrific. And, uh, you know, one you never heard of, but I recommend it is Jose Luis Lopez and I Corte. Oh
0: yeah. oh
2: yeah.
3: Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. What a, you know, action, action, action. That's also was at the, um, Uh, Foxwoods, right. So we had a, you know, and then you say, "I was blessed to do the third um, Johnny Ruiz Evander Holyfield." So I can say I got in with Evander, you know. (laughs) Right. Um, Trivia, trivia. Well, you're going (laughs) to know. I'm on a Mike Tyson card in Atlantic City, and it's the U.S. debut of a heavyweight can you guess mike tyson and he never he'll he never forgets it and we work together
0: ah i, I have a guess
3: <laughs> you have a guess if i want to give karen a um, <laughs> we last work i did a world title in jamaica man uh, and you know yeah. who was ringside man in jamaica <laughs> man
1: we're talking lennox
3: Yes, you are. Yeah. Lennox. <laughs> <laughs> Lennox. I thought so. Lennox. Lennox. Lennox, right. You're Lennox. right. Lennox. <laughs> but we see each other. You go on cycles. I had three runs in Jamaica and we went to lunch and we did this pre-fight. He's, of course, a living legend there. and Why not? Mm. And uh, uh, the trivia is the first American referee was me. Wow. And now yeah. the next trivia
0: <laughs> Steve's okay. taking over the show. Yeah. Al- Alex Trebek is gone. We got Steve Smoker. Uh, please
3: don't put me in that category. <laughs> Give me some more mileage. Uh. But anyway, um, last American referee to referee the hands of stone.
0: Oh yeah, that oh, you, really you his last fight in where the U.S. You?
3: So oh. you know, I have these hallmarks where I've been in with the with the great ones. And, uh, as I said, uh, when you first start to phase out, you really miss it. Mm, mm, You mm. really miss it. Mm. But they've given me a springboard with, first it was NBC, that cushioned the blow. But I was still very active. And I was with guys like Eric. You know, you would fight guys. You go to lunch, you do this, you take the, the... we had Ubers
0: then, didn't we, Eric? I think. We uh, yeah, I think we caught an Uber somewhere. We caught yeah.
3: a couple of Ubers to go here and there, <laughs> and you know, uh, it's been a it's been a great run, guys.
1: Um. So we recently, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Barry Tompkins on the podcast, and we asked him to explain what it is like to be inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame, what that weekend is like. And we'd love to finish by asking you that very same question. What was that weekend like for you? And was there anything about it that was unexpected?
3: First of all, it's a wonderful family event. Mm. And you receive the highest honor. Mm. It's the Emmy. It's the Ox- uh, mm. You know, the, the, uh, what's it, the Emmy? And what's the other thing? The
0: Oscars. The, Oscars. the, Oscar. <laughs> the
3: Oscar. Get it. <laughs> got it out. It's that, that's on the left <laughs> cut from... Uh, from Carl, the Truth Williams, uh, and it's re- it's really the highest honor you can achieve. Now I had a lot of fun because for some reason, my stable mate the entire weekend was Big Daddy Bo.
0: Oh. <laughs> that's a good time there. Yeah.
3: I like I like you, Steve. <laughs> I like you too, Riddick. He <laughs> says. Where do you rate me, Rita? Hey, Stevie. I said, I got your top five, my brother. I said, when you stayed out of the refrigerator
2: and you didn't put
3: on that weight, you were right there. He love that. You really love that. And they really go all out. And it's an honor. You're in the hall. Uh, it's surreal. It's surreal. They cast your fist. It's it's just the highest honor you can achieve. Mm. There's no more to really be said. You're you're uh, they hustle you here and you go here. They took me to the celebrity signing. Riddick had 250 people, and I had my aunt and uncle. <laughs> <laughs> really, he was mobbed, and you know they give me a pen, and the, everybody's with, and of course. The game is fighters, rightfully exactly, so.
2: Exactly, exactly.
3: So I, it, 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 it was just a very, very pleasing going back to be introduced and still be recognized. You know, guys, the boxing public. I've been out of any major work for three years now. Four. Happy twenty twenty one.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> and they said, you know, they run these old. Just saw you last night. You was elevated. They think I'm still acting. I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to dissuade them. Oh, no. That was filmed 10 years ago. In, right. in, <laughs> yeah. No, but really, a lot of the fight fans, they never forget you. Yeah. They never forget you. And uh, I, I can't emphasize how happy I am. You guys, to call me. This keeps me relevant. Mm. I still have all that. I'm, I'm humble. Ready? I've got all the refereeing knowledge in the world, (laughs) all of it. Okay. With humility. I'm sure Richard feels the same way. I know Joe does. Joe does a lot of broadcasting on uh, Spanish network, ESPN and whatever, but uh, I'm very proud of my career. I'm very proud of knowing both of you (laughs) and uh, wind me up. And I can keep going. <laughs> you know.
1: And we are very proud to have had you on the podcast, Steve. It's been a real honor and it's been a real pleasure. And honestly, can't thank you enough. And I hope 2021 sees you and Eric getting together somewhere for more bad food.
3: <laughs> Let me tell you something. I really appreciate the call. I appreciate the accolades. It's great to be recognized. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Thanks, Steve. Steve. Very much Always great catching up. All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks again to Steve. Great guy. So fun catching up with him. I forgot he did Tony Cheeroff. There's a fight I might look up and rewatch this week. Mm, Indeed. Uh, Okay, it is time for the tweet of the week, and it is my turn to pick it. And I was torn here. I had two contenders. I was between one lighthearted, fun one, one serious one. And apologies for dragging the show down, but I'm going with the serious one. Uh, the lighthearted one was from Julian J. Rock Williams about abstaining from coffee, and it used a bunch of emojis. Very fun tweet. Uh, but the tweet of the week that I'm picking comes to us from Ludabella, and it was a response To a tweet by 140 pound champion Josh Taylor, which Taylor has since deleted, perhaps because he didn't care for the heat from Lou. Uh, I couldn't find a screenshot, so I can't tell you exactly word for word what it said, but it was anti lockdown and calling his comments COVID denying would be a bit strong, but Mm. COVID downplaying, at least Mm. I think would be fair. And so here's what Lou tweeted back gtfoh with this josh (laughs) i've watched this virus take dozens of people i knew and a half dozen people i loved more people have died from COVID in my country than died in world war ii you command attention don't use it to spread ignorance end of the tweet um i assume there's a small percentage of our listenership who will be annoyed by us being all liberal and caring about lives and such and talking about it on the show uh but i thought lou did a good job without being overly rude or unprofessional Hmm. uh, in calling Taylor out. Uh, So I know you don't know the exact wording of Taylor's tweet, so Hmm. maybe you can't comment too critically about that part of it. Uh, But what do you think of what Lou wrote? Uh, And if you want to take this opportunity to uh, go off on anti-masker and flat-earther Carl Frotch, uh, the floor is yours to do that. (laughs) No, well, yeah, all I can say is is good for
1: Lou, who has that platform. And he's not afraid to use his platform Uh, for broader issues, for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, I have issues with Lou, but uh, in terms of where he comes from, politically, and in terms of adherence to science, uh, he and I and you are pretty much aligned. So obviously, uh, I welcome it. But yeah, good for him to to do that and to take that opportunity to do that. Um, I can only say that the only reason, knowing Lou, that he used an abbreviation at the beginning of that tweet was because of a limit on characters.
0: (laughs) Yes, it certainly would have pushed him over to spell all those words out. He has uh, never been shy about spelling out the F part of GTFOH.
1: Yeah, indeed. All right. Uh, Let's move along to the news. And the main event of the news week has to be the biggest star in the sport, Canelo Alvarez, who's announced his next fight. And it's a throwback in the sense that it's coming a mere 70 days after his last one. Canelo will face one of his alphabet mandatories, Avni Yildirim, on February 27th at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Florida, in front of a limited number of spectators. The fight will be carried by DAZN. And it will be the first of a two-fight deal between Canelo and Matchroom, with wide speculation that the second fight will be against Billy Joe Saunders in May. Um, that doesn't, on the face of it, seem to bode especially well, Eric, for your wish list wish that Canelo fight on Showtime this year. But it does leave the window open. There's still plenty of 2021 20, left for him, especially if he keeps fighting every two to three months. Um, Eric, goodness me, we joke about the fact that Pretty much every single week on the podcast, we're covering what is Canelo going to do next. It feels as if every time he breathes, it's news. But other than the name Canelo Alvarez being involved, is there anything about this news that is that interests you? Uh,
0: The one thing I would say is the quick turnaround. That that's newsworthy. Even though he didn't take any punishment against Callum Smith, he did go the full 12 rounds. Uh, Anyone else in the modern age takes a longer layoff, but Canelo isn't. He's getting right back into camp after just a couple of weeks off. That's great for boxing, and it's great for him. You know, he he lost most of 2020. He's making up for it in 2021, it seems, while he's still in his prime. That said, the fight is a silly alphabet, mandatory, and as best I can tell, a total mismatch. But, you know, he's entitled to a softy. Basically, if the thought is he was going to fight on May 8th against a credible opponent, and he could either slip in a quick, easy fight before that or not fight at all between now and then, I much prefer this route. Uh, And and Miami is a good move. Uh, Big City should help make the fight high profile and get it some attention. Hopefully they will indeed be careful with the crowd size and crowd control. Uh, Or maybe the rule will be, only vaccinated people can attend. Mm. Uh, So it'll be Canelo versus Yildirim in front of a large swath of Miami's senior community. Um, I'm I'm picturing an (laughs) arena full of Morty Seinfelds (laughs) and Jack Klumpuses. (laughs) All right. Uh, The structure for 2021 of our news segment is supposed to be a main event news item, and then an undercard of everything else. But this week, uh, we're mixing it up a bit. We have a co-feature. Showtime made announcements about its two February cards this week. The network is doing exactly what it did in January, a Wednesday Showbox card. And a big Saturday night Showtime Championship boxing card three days later, both at the Fight Sphere at Mohegan Sun. So on Wednesday, February 17th, we have a Showbox quadruple header coming our way. And the main event features my favorite name to say in all of boxing. It's a 10-rounder <laughs> between undefeated welterweights to Figueroa Boca Chica versus Mark Reyes Jr. Uh, also on the card, a 10-round super middleweights, Showbox veteran Vladimir Shishkin versus Sena Agbeko. Another Showbox returnee, Alejandro Porkchop Guerrero, meets Abraham Montoya in an eight-round lightweight bout, and in an eight-rounder at middleweight, the show opener pits Timur Karafov against Arhennis Espana. As for the Showtime Championship boxing card on February 20th, We have a pretty good idea about the show opener and the co-feature, but contracts are not signed and nothing is official yet, so we'll hold off on that. But we do know that the main event features Adrian Broner against an opponent yet to be announced. So Broner atop a triple header on the 20th, a Showbox quadruple header on the 17th. What stands out to you from those announcements, Kieran?
1: Oh, nothing makes me happier than Adrian Broner being in the ring and on TV, as you know. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was as steven espinoza is well aware actually from his little remarks when we were talking to him um look i was uh an early booster of bronner and back in 2013 or so i think we've talked about this before uh you and i were both part of a panel for espn.com picking right. our future number one pay pound for pound i can't remember if there was a time parameter on it or not but um i picked bronner um in hindsight not the smartest prediction i've ever made but at the time it was justifiable um but it was just around then that things started the wheels started to fall off um Look, he was he was brave during his first loss to Marcus Maidana. Um, He fell some way short against Sean Porter, but he didn't embarrass himself and scored a late round knockdown to sort of make things look not as bad uh, as perhaps they were. But but his losses to uh, to Mikey Garcia and Manny Pacquiao were not good. Um, And his out of the ring persona did not become any more agreeable uh, over that time. He hasn't had a fight in two years, hasn't won in almost four, hasn't scored a KO almost five at this point. He still seems to be trading on the potential that people like me saw in him seven plus years ago. But he was 24 then. He's closing in on 32. There's no reason to believe he's ever going to be who we thought he might be. But all of that said, everyone's a sucker for a redemption story. And if he is telling the truth about giving up booze, at least temporarily, um, and actually dedicating himself to training you know what people including me are going to tune in to watch and see if that's true and then see how well he does and you know see if he can't bounce back to what he, we thought he might be in 2012 2013 how much can he bounce back can he have one more run uh there is something about the guy that is intriguing and you know that's obviously what steven and Showtime are capitalizing on um i do doesn't seem like his opponent this time will be a particularly challenging one, but that's fair enough. Um, but hopefully it'll be good enough so that we can get a sense of how seriously we should be taking what I think by
0: my calculations about the fifth reboot
1: of the Adrian Bronner <laughs> show at this point.
0: Yeah, I, I'm right with you in that I thought I was long since done giving him more chances and and believing in the possibility of him... Raising his game at this point that it was going to be all downhill, I'd written him off and then I got suckered in by some of those social media posts and that chance that uh, it's exactly what you said. I don't think he'll ever be what we dreamed he might be seven years ago, but it does feel like there's something a little different this time. And so maybe he still got one upswing left in him.
1: Yeah, we shall see. Uh, a few other news items to make up our undercard. Uh, the highly anticipated Juan Francisco Estrada-Chocolatito Gonzalez rematch is headed to the American Airlines Center in Dallas on March 13th with a strong co-feature, the rematch between Jessica McCaskill and Cecilia Brekus, Uh Speaking of top female fighters, Clarissa Shields returns to the ring on March 5th against Marie-Yves Decaire, uh, headlining an all-women's pay-per-view from Clarissa's hometown of Flint, Michigan. And the Boxing Writers Association of Murica has tallied the votes of its members. And like us, they named Teofimo Lopez the 2020 Fighter of the Year. Eric, thoughts on any of those?
0: Yeah, uh, good for the BWAA for actually picking a winner and not wussing out and naming co-fighters of the year as at least two major American media outlets did. And the voters picked the correct one in alignment with both of us, as you said, Teofimo Lopez. Um, I'm not sure how well the all-women's pay-per-view card will do, but they seem to have priced it reasonably. And Claressa has a growing fan base and the opponent is solid. Hopefully they'll do all right with that. And uh, that Chocolatito Estrada 2 card did indeed get better. Uh, I'm, I'm very eager to see that McCaskill break us rematch. See if Cecilia can, like Chocolatito, turn back the clock a little bit and, and show she still has something left. Um, Not a busy week of fights ahead of us. Uh, really just one bout worth previewing. Headlining a Fox card from Los Angeles, it's the Caleb Bull. Super middleweight belt holder Caleb Plant, defending against the only man ever to take a break from ice fishing to appear on our podcast, <laughs> Caleb Truax. The odds makers see this one as a serious mismatch. You have to lay something like 45 to 1 if you want to bet on plant to win. Uh, how do you see it, Kieran? That seems excessively wide. Um, <laughs> so wide, it's almost worth a flutter on Truax, uh,
1: even though he obviously he deserves to be the underdog here. But, um, I think we've seen Truax's level. Obviously, you and I are fond of him for ice fishing, podcasting <laughs> reasons, Um uh, but you know i think we know what his level is you know we've been talking about knowing what fighters levels they've shown us what they are and it is someone who can go one and one with james de gale um and that's honestly a full level um below what plant can do i think look plant's a better boxer uh, he's a better puncher i think I, I just, he's just all round the superior uh a fighter and uh, you have to figure the most likely scenario is probably that the, the plant is dominant uh, he probably is going to open up Truax's face at some point mm-hmm. that happens a lot um and maybe stops him late but at the same time even though I think the winner is quite clear I still think it's an intriguing fight um Truax is just good enough for an upset not to be com- inconceivable um particularly if as is not without precedent in Truax fights there's some kind of head clash that leads to a cut and we go to the scorecards early or something like that so
0: it's possible there's intrigue plant's the favorite. But there's intrigue, I think. All right, I'm 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 looking up now because uh, since you seem to be interested in betting on the underdog, I'm looking up what you can get on Truax. <laughs> I have a forty-five to one. <laughs> well, see, the problem is that the forty-five to one is what you lay on plant. Ah. Uh, uh, so I was looking to see what the take back is, and it looks like it's between about ten to one and twenty to one, depending on the sports book. So you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure just how much you believe in True Axe's chances. I don't think I would bet I him think... at that price. Oh
1: well. It was, a, it was a nice storyline while it lasts. Right. <laughs> All right. We will close this week's podcast with this week's top five. As a reminder of what's going on here, um, uh, Eric and I are taking turns to pose each other top five list-making challenges. Uh, in week one, Eric challenged me to list five pretty boys who could really fight. And in week two, I, after ruminating on it a while, I came back and gave him my list. In week three, I posed the challenge to Eric. Give me a list of five one-time hyped prospects, who turned out to be busts. And now it is Eric's turn to reveal that list. The parameters, as always, up to you. Uh, Eric, it was up to you to decide how you defined hyped prospects, how you
0: defined busts. So let's go, let's see what you came up with. All right, here we go. I, I enjoyed this assignment. Uh, and I-, I believe the word that you used when you assigned it was vaunted, uh, all hyped, vaunted, it's all kind of similar, but you know, so the real challenge was figuring out how vaunted is vaunted, and where is the line between disappointment and bust. Uh, I had a a list of 20 total names I considered, but there were a bunch I crossed off quickly because I decided they accomplished too much to be categorized Mm. as busts. Uh, So I'll get around to some of those when I round up my honorable mentions. For now, let's get right to the top five at number five. And I should say, while the list is a bit tilted toward the eras of boxing I've covered— I wanted to make sure to get at least a fighter or two whose career predated me onto this list. So we start with Detroit light heavyweight Anthony Hembrick. If you don't recall the name, uh, you might recall his first pro loss as it's been replayed many times. It came on USA Tuesday Night Fights. Hembrick did this whole extensive choreographed dance routine with his corner men in the ring before the fight. He exuded cockiness. Then Booker T. Word proceeded to knock him out in the first round. Um, Hembrick was a member of the 88 U.S. Olympic team. He had a crazy snafu where he got the time wrong and missed his fight in Seoul. Uh, so he never actually fought in the Olympics. Uh, but he turned pro, highly touted, all the hype in the world. But he never won a major title, had two title shots, but lost both. Ended up 31-8 and eight, and retired after just seven years in the pros. Oh, that's a really that's an excellent call. I was trying to think in my head. I
1: had like a lot of these Tuesday night fight type fighters in my in my in my head of that that was the sort of level that was the sort of broadcast where often guys would come unstuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hembrick wasn't a name I thought of, and I think that's a good that's a good one. That's okay. a good one. Congratulations right. on that.
0: One. Thank you. All right, we're off to a good start. Let's uh, hope, hope I don't blow it. Uh, number four is a guy I did cover uh, and had high hopes for. But was also very critical of, because he never seemed to take training seriously, 2000 U.S. Olympic silver medalist Ricardo Williams Jr. Yeah. He had serious talent, but he never even made it all that close to a title shot. He lost to unheralded Juan Valenzuela in his 10th pro fight, lost to Manning Galloway two fights later did 31 months in jail for drug running, came back but never scored a notable win and retired in 2014 with a record of 22-3, and a guy who turned pro with such promise and then was an absolute bust. I
1: almost felt bad when I assigned this list because I thought, wow, such a... Who the hell are we, (laughs) right? Right. To say this about fight. I mean, good Lord. I mean, it's it's a success just, just getting paid to step in the ring and fight another man and then i thought of ricardo williams and i thought nah like some <laughs> some guys it's fair because you know obviously like there are circumstances in everybody's life and so on and so forth but this was a guy who had the talent who had the ability and who just seemingly did not have the dedication and discipline and desire to, to to do anything except throw it away. I think for me, he was one of the two names that were foremost in my mind when I thought about this list.
0: And it's funny that you, uh, that you mentioned feeling bad uh, as we're talking about Ricardo Williams Jr., because he's actually someone who said something at a press conference once, specifically dropping my name, having read something critical oh, that yeah. I wrote about him and was basically like, said something like i'm gonna uh, that guy eric raskin doesn't know what he's talking about i'm gonna prove whatever so and when that happened i kind of felt bad about having written critical things but he lived down to all of the things (laughs) i wrote so might be the nicest guy in the world sorry as a pro boxer he was a bust so he was uh at number three i credit bill detloff for reminding me about this guy i'd heard about him but had forgotten all about him and he is perfect for this list Alex Ramos, uh, Bronx-based, Puerto Rican middleweight. Uh, He would have fought in the 1980 Olympics, if not for the boycott, turned pro with huge hype, managed by Shelly Finkel, fighting on NBC a lot, groomed for stardom and a shot at Marvin Hagler. But in 1982, he lost by knockout to 8-15-2 Ted Sanders. Uh, He drew in his next fight. He lost to Murray Sutherland in 83. And never really sniffed a major title shot until what turned out to be the last fight of his career in 1994, he took on Jorge Castro in Argentina and got stopped in the second round. He did some good stuff after his career, founding a nonprofit to help retired boxers, but his in-ring pro career, undeniably a huge bust. Didn't even think about him. Very good shout. Uh, He's a, 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 or at least
1: prior to 2020, very common ringside presence at New York fights. Um, Like you said, as well known now for the Retired Boxers Foundation as anything else. Um, Great shout. Very good. Yeah, Didn't so. think about
0: him. Yeah, and neither had I. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I ran I ran my ideas by one person, uh, by, by Bill, who knows his boxing history a little yep. better than I do, especially those guys who uh, came before I was covering boxing, and that was the one name he added to the mix. Um, so, okay, number two. Let's go across the pond, a British heavyweight for whom yep. great things were expected after he won the super heavyweight gold medal in 2000. I am, of course, talking about Audley Harrison, who is... Kind of like Anthony Joshua, if Joshua had lost that fight early in his career to Dillian White, and then Mm. it never got any better for him after that. Uh, Harrison was a project. He was moved slowly at first, stayed unbeaten until late 2005. Then he lost to Danny Williams, then Dominic Gwynn, then Michael Sprott, eventually became a name for guys like David Hay and David Price and Deontay Wilder to knock out and put on their record, finished his career 31-7, and 7 and never really made it even to fringe contender status. British
1: listeners might correct me, but I think it's also the case that they he basically ruin boxing on the bbc for a while too because i think the bbc off of his olympic success gave him a very big contract right. to fight on them and he It so rapidly became clear that he wasn't going to live up to the hype uh that they they felt singed by boxing for a while because they put quite a bit of money into him i think yeah uh, i just don't know i don't know what happened there i, I whether it, whether he was just better at the amateur game or what, but obviously part of the issue was the guy didn't have a chin. Right. But even before that, I remember sitting ringside watching. He had a fight in uh, Laughlin, Nevada, I think, like early in his career, okay. and he just didn't look very good. Like he won the fight, but he just didn't look right. And I, I just don't ever know quite what happened there. Whether yeah, maybe some, some guys, you know, they say are better pro fighters than amateurs. Maybe he was just better the other way around. I, I, I really don't know. But that was a very disappointing career.
0: Yeah, and people were dubious of him long before he'd even lost. He He, yes. got, he got the nickname Fraudly while he yes. was still undefeated. So that's a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> All right and now at the top of the list when you suggested the topic last week i said i know off the top of my head one name that is sure to make my list i wasn't sure that he would be number one but i kind of figured he might be uh do you want to guess who it is it's got to be panchito bajado it is indeed francisco panchito bajado never has a prospect this universally believed to be the goods fallen apart this quickly and this completely for reference he and Miguel Cotto turned pro within a couple of weeks of each other, and it was Bajado who was getting more hype in the first few fights of their career. One boxing writer uh, who shall remain nameless. It's someone I'm on good terms with now, so I don't want to drag him. But oh, right. one boxing writer. Well, put... That's got
1: to be a short list right there.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but one boxing writer put Bajado in his pound-for-pound pound top 10 when he was just 9-0 and hadn't fought any one-world-class yet. That's how sensational Bajado looked. He was getting called the next Duran. People thought he'd be that good. Among his first nine fights, one went to the third round, three ended in the second round, and five were first-round KOs. And then in February 2002, Bajado was only 18 years old at the time, by the way. Uh, he lost in a massive upset to Juan Carlos Rubio. And he never got back on track never flashed any of the top level talent again lost to james Lehigh in 04 stevie forbes in 07 and that was it he finished 18 and three to me the epitome of a mega hyped prospect yeah. who completely busted
1: yeah i mentioned that there were two names in my mind when i suggested it. one was ricardo williams and panchita bajado was yeah. the other and i feel sometimes they're sort of always mentioned together they're they're tied together i think almost in terms right. of for not the great greatest of reasons, but yeah, abs- absolutely. Bahada, and they were basically contemporaneous as well, which I right. added to it. But uh, yeah, what a what a busts. Yes, yeah. absolutely. All right. Uh,
0: so some other names that I considered quickly. Probably my closest runner-up was the aforementioned David Price. Um, I strongly considered Dwayne Bobic and Andrew Maynard. I told mm. you there were some who were more disappointment than bust. That group includes Howard Davis Jr., Jeff Lacy. Jerry okay. Cooney, and Mark Breland. Uh, I thought about a couple of sons of boxers who got some hype out of their names. Uh, Marvis Frazier, Hector Camacho Jr. I guess Ikebe Ibuchi is a special case. hard to say mm. if he was a bust exactly. Um, and then some more recent guys I considered. Felix Verdejo uh yep. seth mitchell uh yep. and our old pal good old big baby miller uh but the, those latter two mitchell and miller i'm not sure they were quite vaunted enough as prospects uh but those were all the names that came across my my radar anyone i missed or anyone uh you would have uh certainly included in your top five yeah you mentioned a couple there definitely bo big uh mitchell was was
1: on my list and again i, I was the same as you like how vaunted was he? I mean, he was vaunted enough to get it, get onto HBO. And, you know, I certainly wrote about him uh, a couple of times. And so, yeah, but uh, more disappointment than bust. Um, another one who sort of falls into that category that was a bit difficult, like how much was he vaunted? Is it fair to say he was a bust? Was he more of a disappointment? Was Michael Grant?
0: Yeah, that's another one that sure I thought about. I wasn't sure what to do
1: with him. Uh, one who I thought did end up being a bust was Jorge Luis Gonzalez. Ah, yes, right. Uh, the Cuban heavyweight, he beat yeah. Lennox Lewis and Riddick Bowe in the amateurs, was quite hyped, was unbeaten when he meet, He finally got the fight with Riddick Bowe. Bowe and Lewis hated him. I mean, the, the, if there was one thing that united Riddick Bowe and <laughs> Lennox Lewis, it was their hatred of Jorge Luis Gonzalez. And Bo just just beat him up over, I think, about eight rounds or so, and, and Gonzalez was barely heard from again. Right. Um. I sort of – here's an interesting one. Leon Spinks. What do you do with Leon Spinks? Yeah. Right? Because on the – he, he, wasn't, he was not he wasn't an Olympian gold medalist, I think, right? And he did beat Ali, although a shell of Ali. And then, then after that, it was a train wreck. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, it, know what you do with Leon Spinks.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can call his career a bust because he held the legitimate heavyweight championship mm-hmm. of the world and defeated Muhammad Ali, even if it was an older Muhammad Ali. So uh, bust from that point forward, I, I think yeah. you could say, but I wouldn't call his whole pro career a bust. Victor Ortiz came
1: into that kind of disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily a bust, but there was, again, highly hyped until the Maidana fight. And it wasn't just that, and he still got to fight for a world title, but it was the way that he lost his fights that he lost right. that, that really was uh, was a disappointment. Yeah, also Howard Davis, uh, in terms of more recent Olympians, he could put Kelsey Banks on there maybe a little bit, right. but I don't know how hyped he was. Uh, a couple of names that I learned from an article about, by Graham Houston, Jose the Threat Barrett, who seemed to really – he was a, a welterweight who went 16-0 with 15 KOs, got a title shot against Marlon Starling, got splattered, and then went one and three in his next four fights and promptly retired. Um, and way back before before my time, for sure, uh, a name I hadn't heard of. I don't know if you had. A guy called uh, Chuck Davey who went oh, undefeated yeah. in his first 39 pro fights, 37-0-2, got a title shot against Kid Gavilan who beat him up and – just, just imploded. Finishing his career, 42, 5, and 2. He seemed like he sort of fit in the list. But I had not heard of him until I was looking for names for this list. I,
0: I had because when I was working at The Ring, I remember somebody wrote something about him. And so it passed through our, our editorial. And, uh, you know, I, I was trying to think. I like I wanted someone from that era. And I, I blanked on Chuck Davy. I knew there were obviously guys like that back then, most of whom are not really remembered. I wish right. I had thought of Chuck Davey because he might have uh, been good to represent the long before four-hour time set.
1: Ah, there you go. Uh, But yeah, there you go. If you ever really want to know some history, find an article by Graham Houston or (laughs) Michael Collins or Bill Detloff and let them do the work for you. All right. So that was good. I'm enjoying this segment so far. Uh, um, Next week, it will be your turn to give me another challenge. Uh, to which I look forward Uh, but yeah this has been a lot of fun Uh, folks if you're listening to this and you have other ideas you all had ideas about my list of pretty boys who could (laughs) fight so I'm sure you're going to come up with uh, something here but uh, uh, that will do it for this week's list that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney thanks again to our guest Steve Smoger we will be back next week with more coverage of and conversation about everything happening in the fight game until then thank you for listening be safe be kind and be well